Support for the show comes from Atlassian. Atlassian software like Jira, Confluence, and Loom help power the collaboration needed for teams to accomplish what would otherwise be impossible alone. Because individually, we're great, but together, we're so much better. That's why millions of teams around the world, including 75% of the Fortune 500, trust Atlassian software for everything from space exploration and green energy to delivering pizzas and podcasts. Whether you're a team of two, 200, or two million, Atlassian software is built to help keep you connected and moving together as one. Learn how to unleash the potential of your team at Atlassian.com. That's A-T-L-A-S-S-I-A-N.com. Atlassian. Welcome to the Prop G Pod's Office Hours. This is the part of the show where we answer your questions about business, big tech, entrepreneurship, and whatever else is on your mind. If you'd like to submit a question, please email a voice recording to officehours at propgmedia.com. Again, that's officehours at propgmedia.com. I have not seen or listened to these questions. First question. Hi, Prof G. Connor here from Toronto, Ontario. A longtime listener. I'm really grateful for you and for the show. And today, uh, my question is on Airbnb. Airbnb, and not a lot of people know this, in November of 2022, launched Airbnb Friendly Apartments. It's a pilot program with uh, Graystar, one of the largest apartment owners in the world. And uh, it, it's a program to allow renters to uh, Airbnb out their place for a few weekends a year to earn some additional income. It allows uh, landlords like the Graystars of the world to offer premium rental units and offer Airbnb friendly rentals. It allows apartment owners like Graystar to leverage uh, Airbnb, the most recognizable hospitality brand in the world, and their beautiful website and listing experience uh, and their eyeballs and their reach uh, to rent out their apartments. Um, a lot of the folks in property management and real estate industry, um, where I come from, are uh, following Airbnb and recognize it as the sleeping giant that is. Uh, and the moment that it decides or finds a way to crack the code to uh, get into the long-term apartment rental space, that they could be well positioned to do so. And so I'm curious, uh, what are your thoughts on this? Uh, have you uh, read into the Airbnb-friendly apartments program? And what do you think about Airbnb starting to dip their toe into the long-term apartment rental space? Uh, once again, I love the show. Thank you so much for your, for your time and everything you do with it. Uh, thanks so much. Thanks for the question, Connor from Toronto. I was conceived in Toronto. Every year, my dad and I go to the uh, opening game of the Leafs at the Air Canada Center. Every year, I ask him if he wants something off his bucket list. That's the only thing he wants every year. Anyways, um, love Toronto. Don't know where I was going with that. So just some context here. In As you referenced, in uh, November 2022, Airbnb announced the launch of its Airbnb Friendly Apartments Program, a platform allowing renters to host apartments made possible through partnering with major landlords. I think this was probably Airbnb's attempt to circumvent or push back on what was a fairly anti-Airbnb movement by apartment owners who saw it as um, not good for the vibe, not good for the uh, value of their apartments. Although you would think if you could monetize apartments, it would increase the value. As I think about it, I think the primary opponents of Airbnb have probably been state and local municipalities who wanted that hotel revenue or hotels themselves, very powerful lobby who pay a lot of taxes, who didn't want a competitor. My understanding is Airbnb actually pays um, hotel taxes or hotel-like taxes now in many municipalities. Currently, there are 175 apartment buildings being showcased in more than 25 major markets, including Los Angeles, San Francisco, and Seattle. Apartment buildings are able to charge the primary tenant up to a 20% fee for each Airbnb use. 
Buildings are also able to implement restrictions on how many nights per month a tenant can host. And the building management has the ability to review listings and deactivate them if they do not follow the building standards. According to Airbnb's findings from buildings in test mode, tenants hosted about nine nights per month, averaging about $900 per month. So why is this happening? Obviously, there's an increase in demand for remote work. Tenants are looking for ways to supplement their income due to rising cost of living. And this is a way of saying for the landlord to say, if we can't fight them, join them and say, look, we'll let you do this. We just want our beak wet, if you will, or wetted or lubricated. Give me some Benjamins. Daddy needs a little love if love is paying the owner of the apartment money such that you can do something which you probably should be able to do anyways. I don't think, to your core question, Airbnb goes vertical in apartments. The Airbnb model is so attractive and gets such a greater multiple than REITs because it doesn't own the capital. Its margins and its operating income and its leverage are just so dramatic because it has employed what effectively every hotel company has employed. Hotels no longer own hotels. What do I mean by that? Westin, the Four Seasons. I think the Four Seasons only owns one or two of its own hotels. What they do is they have somebody else, specifically the richest guy in that city, comes in and buys the hotel because he wants to say he owns the Four Seasons in Hawaii. I think Michael Dell owns all the Four Seasons in Hawaii. They run it in exchange for running it, managing it, staffing it. Uh, they get between 8 and 12% of top line. So in good years, they make a lot of money. In bad years, they just make a decent amount of money. But it's an amazing business, and they don't have to take the capital risk of spending a couple hundred million dollars, if not more, on a property in, in Mauna Loa. Mauna Loa, I don't even know if that's a place, but it sounds nice. It's a great business, the management business. And effectively, Airbnb is a management company. It doesn't have to go out and spend tens, hundreds, millions, billions of dollars on the actual asset itself. And so its leverage on capital and its margins are gigantic. And if they started going vertical into actual apartment properties, I think that changes the complexion of their unit economics and maybe even worse, re-rates the multiple the market assigns uh, to their stock. If they were going to go vertical, if they were going to own properties, I think they would probably go into hotels because it strikes me that Airbnb is mostly individuals who want a short or medium-term solution. It's not someone moving for two or three years looking to Airbnb. That brand means nomadic exploration, uh, the joy of exploration. It's an aspirational kind of aptly feeling design-centric brand. I can see them buying one big, cool, not upscale, but aspirational hotel such that people had a plan B if they wanted to stay somewhere and get the amenities of a hotel and maybe be part of something a little bit more social. But I would imagine Brian Chesky, who's a very smart guy, says, why mess with an amazing business model? And that is utilizing other people's fallow assets. So I don't see them going vertical. And if they do, I think it'll be in hotels. But it's an interesting question. Thanks for the call. Go Leafs. Question number two. Hey, Prof G, thanks for taking the question. I've loved the show for a long time. Um, I particularly love the way that you talk about modern masculinity being in crisis. And my question stems around how you think that crisis of masculinity applies to the way we approach fertility and particularly fertility challenges today. The context here is I run product for a fertility tech company called Deveris, and we do behavioral interventions to help couples and individuals improve their fertility potential and their reproductive outcomes. And you can guess in the couples program, probably that, you know, there's a lead partner and a secondary partner. And without fail, the lead partner who's driving the purchase, and then the experience itself is always the woman in a heterosexual relationship. And 
my hypothesis is that guys just are really, really find it hard to engage with infertility and even with like baby fever or like wanting to get pregnant. And I'm, I'm curious your hot takes on how the crisis of masculinity might apply to some of these stats that we're seeing in product. And I think more broadly, like how can we get guys to show up differently when they're half the equation to make a baby with someone that in theory they, they love and want to start a family with? Thanks for the question that has all sorts of landmines for me to say something stupid and get canceled. But uh, it's an interesting question. And also, your company sounds really cool. And uh, not only is probably going to kill it from an economic standpoint, but it's also, I imagine that's pretty rewarding. Uh, by the way, back to me, I was a sperm donor, a junior year in college, paid for my entire year of college as a sperm donor. True story, went with two friends who were both water polo players. These guys were blonde gods. I was blonde. I'll give myself that. And they were much smarter than me. And they do this total uh, like 360 test on you, including pictures of you with nothing but your underwear on, an IQ test. And then the part of the story that uh, I really love because it's profane and funny and it's also true is they give you a VD test. Now, if you have never had a VD test, as a man, let me just put it this way, it is highly invasive. And because I had not to that point had a VD test, it was also very unexpected. And so they took this, uh, basically this Q-tip on the end of a steel wire and uh, took it somewhere where nothing had gone before and I fainted. And the next thing I remember is waking up with a semicircle of uh, very concerned nurses and uh, executives at the Santa Monica Fertility Clinic asking me if I was okay. And the first thing I said in my sort of hazy state was, you're never going to want my sperm now, are you? Anyways, uh, that was my experience. And despite my concerns about the fainty Scott Galloway, I got called three or four times a week to come in and make my deposit, so to speak. And I got paid $35 a shot for something I was doing regularly anyways. And that $140 a week in 1984 basically paid for my junior year in college. And I kept doing it. Uh, ultimately, my mom made me stop because she said, your daughter's going to marry her brother by accident. Anyways, there's my sperm donor story. There's my fertility story. Uh, I think, I don't know if this is a recent thing. I don't know if kind of men showing up or not being as excited about having a baby is a masculinity thing. I think it's very anthropological. And that is women feel the need to breed. They feel the need to have children. Men feel the need to have sex. And I think men are very excited about having sex and less excited about having children. And so, and the downside of sex or the cost of sex is a much lower risk for men because uh, they're around for seven seconds. That's optimistic, by the way. Uh, whereas a woman has no choice or very little choice, but to be around for at least kind of 18 or 21 years. So I think women feel a greater obligation, are better planners, are probably more mature earlier in life. And also I think women have, um, the window is just different for women than it is for men. So men don't feel the same sense of urgency, I don't believe. I think they wake up and say, I would really like to practice making a baby today. A study published in the International Journal of Environmental Research and Public Health in 2019 found that women and men have different approaches to the diagnosis and treatment of infertility. Hmm. The study revealed that having your own child is more important for women than for men. 49% of men were ready to accept a lack of offspring, whereas only 24% of women were ready to accept it. Let me just finish here, and that is... I would say 50% of the people I know, of the couples I know, have had trouble getting pregnant. 
And that is you spend your whole life or most of your adult life trying not to get pregnant. And you take for granted that when you want to get pregnant, you will. And what you find out is that's not always the case. I know a lot of people that have struggled to have kids. What also has happened is that almost all of them, as a matter of fact, everyone I can think of eventually figured it out. Thanks for the question. We have one quick break before our final question. Stay with us. Support for Prop G comes from Fundrise. You know the adage, buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You're going to add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes and with as little as $10 by visiting Fundrise.com slash PropG. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at Fundrise.com slash flagship. This is a paid advertisement. Welcome back. Question number three. Hi, Scott. My name is Michael, and I'm a 25-year-old supply chain engineer located in Minneapolis, Minnesota. I consider myself relatively well-informed on things like business and politics, largely thanks to a combination of your podcast and reading the daily news and nonfiction books. The problem is, I find that I have a passive relationship with this information. I often find myself regurgitating canned takes or opinions instead of creating unique analyses on my own. My question is, how might you recommend someone practice distilling information absorbed through the media into independent, thoughtful analyses? I want to hone my ability to be a critical thinker on complex matters so that one day I may be able to be less of a thought consumer and more of a thought creator. Thanks to you and your team for the outstanding work you do. Cheers. Well, first off, implicit in that is a really nice compliment. Thank you, Michael. Um, it's a super interesting question. And I don't know, you know, this kind of comes down to how can you be more creative or a more original storyteller? And so let me just come clean. There's very few things I do that are original. Uh, almost all of my sayings are parroted from someone else. I try and give attribution where it is uh, warranted or where I can remember who said it. Um, I will immediately, the jokes I read at the beginning of this show are usually from the internet. Sometimes they're mine. Most of the time they're from the internet. Uh, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. The greatest physicists in the world, 99% of what they're doing is not original work. It's stringing together other people's work or looking at it through a lens differently. You know, but so I don't know if there's an exercise such that you can become a more critical thinker. What I can tell you is that you can be hugely successful by being inspired by and learning from and adopting uh, other people's storytelling and insights. There's just... There's very little that's original out there. I was a consultant for most of my career, and I like to think of myself as a creative person, but the basis of consulting is you don't need to be creative. You just need to benchmark every other creative thing that's done out there, see what's working, and see what might fit the company you're consulting to. Occasionally, I'll, I'll have what I'll call an original thought, and I try and run with it. So I'll give you an example. Uh, I do think there's something around, and I'm in Riyadh today and gave a uh, speech today, and I thought, okay, there are emissions. And I thought, well, all right, we know there are emissions, but emissions are a function of turning one substance into another for economic gain. And I think there's some insight there, and that probably someone else has said that. I probably heard it somewhere else. 
What I thought was the insight was I said, okay, the emissions of turning attention into advertising into money has created these tremendously noxious fumes of rage, teen depression, polarization, weaponization of elections. I think that is an original thought. And so when I have an original thought, I really try and go with it and expand it and come up with analogies and examples and then find data. And it's the data that brings it to life. I don't know how original a thought that is, but it's one, finding other people's, 98% of my slides on stage, and I basically communicate for a living and like to think I'm, that there's some insight and creativity there, are other people's ideas, and you reference them, told in an interesting way. And then when you do find something that you think is original, really try and expand on it and go to town with it. But my brother, don't believe you can't be one of the most creative people in history and also just be somebody who is inspired by other people's work. Every major retailer, special retailer in America, I mean, effectively Pottery Barn and Restoration Hardware, you know what they do? Some of the most, I mean, you, you go walk into those stores and want to buy everything. They find other artisans, the true creative people, and they rip off their work. And they say that they're inspired by, right? That's the actual legal term. So, yeah, when you find something original, you have an original twist of phrase or a unique way of looking at something, bounce it off people, see what they think, massage it, hold on to it, develop it. But the fact that you're even thinking this way and you're cognizant of other people's interesting ideas and writing them down, at least mentally, means you got 99% of the hard work done. Thanks for the question. That's all for this episode. Again, if you'd like to submit a question, please email a voice recording to officehours at propgmedia.com. Again, that's officehours at propgmedia.com. This episode was produced by Caroline Chagrin. Jennifer Sanchez is our associate producer. And Drew Burroughs is our technical director. If you like what you heard, please follow, download, and subscribe. Thank you for listening to the Prop G Pod from the Vox Media Podcast Network. We will catch you on Saturday for No Mercy, No Malice, as read by George Hahn, and on Monday with our weekly markets show.